So, uh, so thanks again, guys, for being with me. We'll just start off. Uh, James knows because he's done a lot of these, but uh, Chris, uh, you probably, it's been a while since you've been on. I casually just jump right into it and, uh, you know, save the introductions for later. So let's get right into it. This is a topic that you guys probably don't know this, but one of the reasons why this event, historical event, has been important to me, or at least has caught, caught my, my interest more than others is because it was on my birthday, April 19th. And, oh, wow. and it's always weird because a lot of weird things happen around my birthday. As you guys know, you know, April 19th, April 20th, um, there's a lot of just weird historical events that happen around that time frame. So it's, it's something that I remember pretty clearly, even though, you know, I was born in 85, it happened in 95. <laughs> so I was only 10 and I don't, I didn't really recall what was going on, but I remember being afraid of leaving the house. Cause I'm just like, wait, there's bombs places and people are blowing stuff up. But I, I remember my mom going to the, like wanting to go to grocery store or something. And I'm like, no, I'm not leaving the house. I'm like, what if we die? You know, but, um, but it, it, for some reason that always caught my interest. And as I guess, for lack of better terms, somebody who, um, questions things and can be labeled as a conspiracy, conspiracy theorist, I, uh, you know, I, there was a lot of obvious holes in this story, which only made me more curious about it. And, uh, and I think it's kind of gotten forgot, forgotten a little bit after nine 11 and a lot of these other things that happened afterwards. So I think it's important to, to put some, um, put some attention on it. I know Chris's film, uh, it's, it, you know, it, it was the first film they, they, they produce and, and put together. So I know it's a little older. James has <laughs> done some older videos, uh, and, Actually, well, more recently, I think uh, your your short conspiracy theory OKC uh, video came out. But um, but yeah, some of your other work is is a little older. But I think it's a topic that really deserves some attention and deserves to be uh, talked about because I think a lot of times these stories get lost, and it's always about nine eleven, and it's always about you know all these more recent stories. But um, but I think this one is equally as important, and I think really if if even for some people, I think it's almost easier to have a conversation about OKC than 9-11. Like I, because it's so obvious and it's, there's so many eyewitness accounts and so many, uh, well, we'll get into it. But, um, so for people listening, uh, would, would you, would one of you guys want to take the lead with maybe just sharing what the official story is and, and what happened on that day? Sure. I'll, I'll do a, uh, a quick, uh, two minute summary. <clears throat> well, uh, it was on Wednesday, April 19, 1995, and um, it was a, a clear morning uh, in downtown Oklahoma City, everybody going to work as normal. And at 9.02 a.m., uh, the official narrative said that a, a rider truck with an 18-foot cab uh, pulled up in front of the A.P. Murrah building. Timothy Mouvet got out by himself, uh, set a fuse in the cab, which was uh, run through a hole in, uh, through the cab box by the driver's cab, to uh, set off uh, at least uh, eight, if not 10, um, barrels of ammonium nitrate and fuel oil. And uh, he, he casually jogged away, got into his uh, yellow uh, faded 1977 Mercury uh, two-door car and sped off And uh, uh, after the bombing happened. And uh, then he was um, taken into custody just south of the Kansas-Oklahoma City border and Oklahoma border uh, by a, a state trooper, Charlie Hanger, who was a good 150 miles out of his precinct. That's another story for another time. And um, he was taken into custody and remanded uh, uh, to the federal prison outside of Oklahoma City four days later, um, only to be uh, um, brought in front of a grand jury 10 days later. Uh, what uh, the narrative failed to 
uh, include was the extensive damage to the building. Uh, we found out subsequently there were 23 devices in the building. Uh, three of them went off. The Enfo truck actually exploded uh, five to eight seconds after the AP Murrow building was uh, coming down under controlled demolition from east to west. And this is all uh, proved by our sources, the Oklahoma County Bomb Squad, the Oklahoma City Police Department, uh, helicopter pilots uh, video, as well as uh, photographic evidence, extensive evidence, and a white paper report offered by the Oklahoma City uh, Police Department to the State Highway Patrol and the FBI that was uh, quashed and, and completely ignored. So um, as a film crew, we our, our task was to pretty much clear the table and start over. We knew the, the official narrative was wrong on so many levels, scientifically, morally, ethically, uh, and legally. It was just, it was vacuous. It was nothing there. And our challenge was to find out, okay, what really happened? And this was information that uh, was based on the Justice Department's own documents. We had federal or local, county, state, and federal law enforcement help us. Uh, so that's what we did for eight and a half years before the film came out. And it was, it was quite a journey and we're still doing it. I, I still get information uh, coming our way at least once or twice a month. I get contacted. And now you're, you're from Oklahoma, right, Chris? I, I lived there for 12 and a half years. I actually moved there in January of 2003. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, yeah. I was in Austin, Texas, oh, living right. in Texas at the time of the bombing. <clears throat> yeah. And, and I, I think uh, James Lane and some of the other people that helped with the film, like, are, are, were from. I mean, were you guys from there? Some of you guys from there and stuff. Is that what's? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And, and James, so James, what? What got you interested in this? And and what was your initial? Uh, I guess, you know, light, light bulb that went off. That like, okay, this official story seems like something's wrong here. Yeah, I'm beginning to wonder that myself because I'm the only person here who doesn't have any form of personal connection to this. I'm, it's nothing to do with my birthday. It's not, uh, I'm not even, I'm not American, let alone Oklahoman. So I have no connection to this, no friends or family. But um, this was after I started getting into 9-11 Truth and other things. This was one of the first um, really uh, things that, that really hit me right in the face because it's something that I'd never even heard conspiracy theories about, let alone looked into. And when I started to see the video evidence of, oh, you know, move back, there's more bombs in the building, they're getting more bombs out, and things like that, things that I'd never heard or seen before, it really hit me. And I think that echoes what you were saying, Ricky. This is, I mean, 9-11 and things, people have so much baggage and so many associations, and there's so much out there already, but something like OKC is a clear-cut case, crystal clear, 100%, that the official story is not true or is not the full truth. There, there's no doubt whatsoever about that. There's a lot of things about what information we can trust and what we can't trust and what rabbit hole you want to go down, but 100% we can agree that the, the official story is not true and it's easy to show. And a lot of people don't have the mental barriers in place to a subject like this that they do to 9-11. So I think that's always drawn me to this. And in fact, it has been one of those things that I've gone back to over and over through the years because it doesn't get a lot of attention, but it is just so clear cut. There's no doubt that the official story is wrong. Yeah, so we can start off with just what happened that day and some of the eyewitnesses who saw multiple men. I mean, videos that disappeared, uh, first responders, I mean, all this stuff is is so intriguing because it was it was all ignored. So, what's some of, what's some of the uh, the storylines and and cases you guys are 
uh, you guys think are, are the most interesting and, and most important? Let me uh, start off, Ricky. I want to I want to commend James on the air. I and I uh, James, I apologize. I didn't discover this till about two years ago. Eurachium for um, Kenny Trinidad and Terry Yaki, stellar work, and uh, that's and that leads into Ricky's question because. There were actually four stories within the story. The death of Officer uh, Sergeant Terrence Yakey, uh, Kenneth Trenadu, the uh, complete miscarriage of justice with the grand jury, Hoppe Heidelberg, was one of the members. He wasn't the jury, jury four person. Um, so, I mean, all of those are solid cases that we could have done a, a movie within the movie. We just simply didn't have the time or the uh, the resources to do it. But it's always open for you know a, a follow-up. So thank you for doing what you did on the Requiem. Anybody can Google that uh, under your your channel and uh, great work. Uh, you took it to a whole new level that uh, we just didn't have the time to do uh, with the films. Well, thank but, you for that. Um, and that was based a lot on work of yourself and people like yourselves who had dug that information up. I just put it together because clearly it is worthy of an entire investigation unto itself. Each part of this yeah. is just this whole separate story. Uh, just a, a couple things, and then I'll uh, yield some time to James also. I want to make sure we both get a fair shake on this. Um, the first thing that uh, would hit us was you know, and my background is an engineering student. I was a year and a half as an undergrad engineering student in civil engineering. And I looked at the damage of the building. And what we did uh, when I first moved there, the, for the first six months, I was just searching out the victims, family members, survivors, law enforcement, uh, first responders, private investigators, anybody that had anything to do with the case. And uh, one of the first guys I talked to was a Dr. Jack Goben. He worked for the customs uh, uh, department, but he dealt with a lot of the agriculture coming into Oklahoma City from around the world. Um, world Rogers Airport is an international airport, and it was his his and his crew's task to um, make sure that what was brought into the airport wasn't going to spread uh, disease, you know, for the the crops and so forth and, and agribusiness in Oklahoma. But he's on the sixth floor of the Murrah Building, and he's uh, just sat down at his desk after getting a, a cup of coffee from the the small break room they had there, um, him and uh, eight of his fellow employees. And this is a guy, two things. He lived in San Francisco, and he's a Vietnam War veteran. And what he told me, I went to his office. Uh, it was about a mile and a half from where the Murr building stood. And he had it, oddly enough, set up exactly the way it was when he was in the Murr building. So I was looking at a basically a, uh, a mock-up of, <laughs> he showed me everything, where the desk was and everything, and it was kind of eerie. And this is about a year or so after uh, I, I moved there. Anyway, he told me two things. First of all, the Venetian blinds on his window, which were facing the north, these are the, the vertical Venetian blinds, were shaking side to side. And he said that was a telltale sign of, of the building shaking. And having lived in San Francisco, he hit the ground, went under his desk immediately. And it wasn't, any, and as a Vietnam vet, he learned when he set charges and, and shot off mortar rounds that they had to do a count to figure out, okay, the distance, you know, and even in the middle of the night when they shoot off mortar rounds, they figured out how far it went. So we did a uh, an 8,000 count, an eight count. And he says, that's when the windows blew in. That's definitive proof that the building was coming down a full eight seconds before the truck bomb even went off. Cognitively, he had the wherewithal to get under his desk. And he says if he didn't, he would have been impaled and, and uh, probably decapitated because there was glass all over, peppered into the drywall and the, and the, and the brick in, the, in his wall uh, all the way up from the desk up because the desk was the only thing that was blocking the, the blast force attenuation coming out of the truck. And he's on the sixth floor. This is not the level of the truck. And it still blew the windows in. Unfortunately, uh, with the collapse of the building and uh, it, it, uh, seven of uh, his coworkers fell down into the rubble and, and perished. 
but he was the only survivor from the department. And and he said uh, it wasn't for the building shaking, he wouldn't have been able to get under the uh, the desk, and um, he he would have died instantly. Uh, the mortar round uh, aspect came in because. What we found out later from the Oklahoma County Bomb Squad is that there was a separate device that had nothing to do with the Enfold truck. It was a it was a subnuclear device that literally caused an invisible mushroom cloud. And I know this is it took us a year and a half to wrap our head around this, as we talked to General Parton, who we interviewed in the film, other experts, uh, retired CIA agent that had uh, lived in Oklahoma City, and he told us, "Yeah, this is telltale CIA. If you're going to take a building down, this is the way you do it. Textbook, no questions asked." And it was really eerie just to sit down with him across the table at a Denny's. And he just scribbled this out on paper like it was, you know, just another day at the office. But he said that invisible mushroom cloud sucked the air within two blocks of the Murrah building, shot it straight up in the air over 400 feet. Anything that was there, whether it be leaves, the paper in the building, trash on the roads, literally was just pulled toward the building and shot up into the air. What that caused was a uh, about just a little over a second, a, a complete vacuum. And the reason they brought that up is that's there were 72 vehicles in the parking lot across the street that the pressure inside the gas tank, so there'd be the pickup trucks, uh, El Caminos, cars, whatever, uh, dump trucks, that pressure in the gas uh, tanks was was more than what was outside. And those those tanks exploded, causing the uh, what Dr. Gobin described as mortar rounds. I mean, they started the trunks on fire, the the uh, the tires were on, uh, you know, the black smoke, and that started rolling into the building, and that's what he was breathing in. And he couldn't figure out what those were, but depending on the amount of fuel in each of those tanks, that determined when they were going to blow up. So there was successive explosions for 30 or 40 explosions. He said it sounded like mortar rounds. So those two things clearly showed it wasn't ANFO. ANFO doesn't do that. And there was a horrendous amount of ordnance in that building. Luckily, all the devices didn't go off. J- James, would you want to add to that? Or we can get into, you no, know, because we brought up a couple names that I think some people listening might not be too familiar with, with uh, Jesse Trenadu uh, and uh, Terrence uh, Yeeke. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the officer. And maybe we could get into a little bit of uh, those stories, too, because I think it's uh it's pretty fascinating and yeah. l- like you well, know that, just uh, that actually gets ahead. into what i was going to uh, to bring up because if you're talking about people or, or witnesses or things that people might want to know about there are different names that we could throw out there that would give people at least an entry into the story if they aren't familiar with it yet um perhaps even for the normiest of the normies just directing people to carol howe who was an atf uh, alcohol tobacco and firearms informant we know her confidential informant number ci 183 we know her testimony we know what she talked about we have all the documents that she was involved in the elohim city white supremacist compound circles and she um was uh, involved in a casing of the oklahoma city federal building in december 1994 with andreas strassmeyer and dennis mahon andreas strassmeyer who's that it's this german guy who was head of security for elohim city who mysteriously left the country in 96 before he was questioned about anything and oh by the way turns out to uh, absolutely have been uh, working with federal authorities um in some manner i'm not sure maybe chris has more details on exactly what his connection was and who he was working for i i know he was working for german intelligence but to what extent he was directly working for the cia i'm not sure if that's uh, documented but anyway um but uh, so carol howe is a great one of those windows into the story 
um, that just opens up a whole bunch of other can of worms. Uh, Terrence Yakey, um, his name's come up. Kiro, cop of the year, ran into the building, one of the first people on the scene, responding bravely, pulling people out of the building and helping. And uh, he said, he, he indicated that he had information, that things were not what they seemed in there, and that he had seen things that were against the official story, and ends up going into uh, saying that he had information. He was going on his way to help deliver this uh, information, and guess what? He ends up dragging himself across the field and shooting himself in the back of the head a couple times, and um, just magically committing suicide. Uh, but perhaps the mo- one of the... the, the most interesting windows into all of this for someone who's new to this is the the Kenneth Trenadu story. So basically, Kenneth Trenadu um, was uh, he had a, uh, attempted bank robbery with a fake gun and things like this. So he had been sentenced um, to six years. Um, no, he served six years of a twenty-year sentence. He was paroled in nineteen eighty-eight. Um, in ninety-five, June of ninety-five. Uh, he was picked up crossing the border from Mexico into California, and when he was uh, picked up, they found that he was violating his parole. So they they took him in, and he was transferred to the Oklahoma City Federal Transfer Center, which was odd because it had nothing to do with his case. It wasn't the jurisdiction of where his case was or anything like that. And then on, um, I believe it was August 21st, he ends up... Yes, it was almost four days, four months to the day after the bombing. You're exactly right, almost, right yes. You know. August 21st, 1995, he ends up killing himself in his uh, in his cell. Um, there was... Uh, and uh, this is the way it was presented to the family. Uh, until the family received uh, photographs of the body, which clearly showed he had been brutally beaten um, before whatever happened to him happened to him. He was hung or whatever. Um this aroused the attention of his brother, uh, Jesse Trenadu, who was a uh, uh, is a lawyer, and through years and years and years of digging up documents and taking the federal government to court, the FBI to court, he has dug up so many different threads in this story, including, of course, one of his fights has been to get the actual video surveillance tape of the, uh, the, the Murrah building, which we know exists, and which multiple sources have absolutely attested to shows not just Timothy McVeigh, but a second person driving up in the rider cab and the second person setting the fuse. This was all apparently multiply attested to. There's no doubt that that tape exists, but the FBI can't find it. They say it doesn't exist. Uh, He took them to court for years trying to get that tape out of them. Um, He did get, uh, interestingly, tapes of the rider approaching, uh, the rider truck approaching on many or many of the different surveillance camera footage that that did exist. And on several of them, numerous ones, uh, just as the rider truck was passing, the tape was being changed or the tape goes blank or the tape is missing. Um, just a remarkable coincidence. For some reason, all of these surveillance cameras failing at the same time. Um, but uh, the Trenadu story goes on and on. There's so many different aspects of this. And the reason that Kenneth Trenadu apparently was involved in this in the first place is because they mistook him for John Doe number two. He had various superficial details like the dragon tattoo on his arm and other things that led them to believe that he was this John Doe number two. So they took him in. Uh, he clearly got... Uh, killed during some sort sort of interrogation, and this is 
how his brother has ended up becoming, uh, I think his brother is based in Salt Lake City, but he's ended up yes. becoming one of the, the biggest antagonists of the federal government on this case because uh, his brother ultimately ended up dying because of this uh, this case and its involvement. Um, again, so many different threads there, but I hope people will look into my requiem for the suicide on Kenneth Renadu to, uh, to find out more information about that. Yeah, and I'll put links in the show description to your videos and uh, so people can check that out and also to uh, a Noble Lie, which is Chris's uh, a film, which actually f- for people who want to watch it for free, it's on Amazon Prime. If you have Amazon Prime, it's actually available there to watch if, if you guys want to watch it. But this Kenneth Trenadu story is so interesting because of the fact that because of a mistaken identity, they m- probably opened up a can of worms and now they're messing with the wrong person because now they have this 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 you know this feud with Jesse trying to do which apparently is a badass attorney who's not you know who, who's not just you know giving up and really putting up a fight and i i guess there's also some judges that are, are helping him out and re- really like you know pushing back against uh, all these uh de- declassified information so i mean one mistaken identity opens up this big can of worms but the thing that's interesting to me is that uh, like so they killed him why do you think, even if they did think he was John Doe, one of the John Does, was it? I mean, have you guys have any any theories or opinions on why why would they kill him anyways? Because I mean, with the John Does, it's you know, and we're gonna go back into like who were these John Does? Was were they working with the FBI? Were they informants? Were they no no no? I mean, do you think it could have been like trying to take out an informant because they thought he knew too much or something like that? I mean, because it doesn't like that's the kind of part of the story that doesn't seem like it makes a lot of sense. It's like okay, so they. They thought he was one of the John Doe's. They uh, they probably want to uh, maybe shut him up. I mean, if that would is that maybe what you guys think? Yes. Happened? Yeah. One thing that we learned about oh gosh, it, again, it took us about a year and a half to wrap our head around all this information. And by the way, I do want to give uh, credit where credit is due to the Oklahoma Bombing Investigation Committee: Charles Key, George Wallace, Dave, uh, Dale Phillips, and VZ Lott. We actually uh, interview um, Charles Dale and VZ in the film. George wasn't available at the time, but those are the guys that really dug into this. And, and their their book is, was the seminal. That's the, the the source of what we used in the film, and then we were able to expand on that. But to answer your question, Ricky, um, what we found out was that right as soon as the FBI landed in Oklahoma City, the big shoulders from D.C. come in on uh, the Learjets into um, Tinker Air Force Base. They wanted this case to be uh, a selective prosecution. They wanted a very narrow focus on this. They knew darn well that, I mean, when they were, I'm, I'm going to tell you this, and not a lot of people know this, there were 20, uh, out of the president's fleet that came in from Andrews Air Force Base that morning of the bombing, there were 24 jets that gassed up, ready to go, take the president and the cabinet and their immediate family members anywhere in the world they need to go. 14 of those jets show up in Oklahoma City at Tinker Air Force Base, wheels up, wheels down within four hours of the bombing. Why would that kind of resources and, the, and that the president's own fleet of planes come into Oklahoma City if it was just McVeigh and Nichols? The authorities knew darn well this was a huge inter, international in scope. In fact, there were five agencies that came in, reps from five agencies that came in on those jets. We had no idea those agencies even existed. This is way beyond military intelligence. And that's from the sources we had to tinker. They gave, they tapped us on the shoulder, so to speak, and says, just watch out. Don't even talk to these guys. They make the CIA look like child's play. Why would those guys show up? Well, because the case is bigger than uh, than anybody would even imagine. And when those guys show up, all right, so to answer your question, they only wanted two people. 
McVeigh and Nichols. They didn't want anybody else. That would have completely screwed up the prosecution's case. The defense would have had a field day with this. And there's a good chance McVeigh would have gotten off. And Nichols was certainly, he was set up. He was framed from day one. He would have got out. He would have never been uh, sent to a federal uh, lockup in uh, Florence, Colorado. Isn't so, argument they're made about the John Doe's is that they didn't want to, pro- well, at least that's what the, they're telling officially to the public is just, that they didn't want to investigate or they didn't further investigate the John Doe's because, and then uh, more likely t- Tim wouldn't have got the death penalty. So it was like, exactly. And well, it would also reveal that McVeigh and we found this out from the defense counsel's own document. Stephen Jones gave us full and unfettered access to 142 boxes of his legal documents that he um, collected and accrued during the discovery process. And it was of all people, and I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but this this goes back to your question. There was a huge, a broader uh, a group of people involved, so much so that the U.S. prosecutor at the time, Merrick Garland, who oddly enough was tapped on the shoulder to be a nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court. I just nearly fell out of my chair when I found that out. It's the last guy I'd have on the list. He pleaded up and down with Judge Mace for four months to seal the records that Jones is coming up with. Jones had a big defense team. He had over 50 people on there, spent $28 million of the uh, Justice Department's uh, funds to send his team worldwide, worldwide. They knew this was a broader conspiracy, and Merrick Garland would have none of it. And the judge sealed those records for seven years. After that uh, order expired, uh, about a year after, uh, Attorney um, Jones uh, contacted me and said, let's sit down and talk. He says, we know you're going to do work on this film. He says, I couldn't bring this information out. You are going to have full access to all of this. And it was just unbelievable. It was like walking into a a room of just, it was amazing information. So that's where we found at least 12, if not 18 people were involved. And McVeigh and Nichols had very little to do with this. McVeigh was working for the CIA. Nichols was framed. And it was um, the... um, and I, his name slipped my tongue, uh, mind right now, but he was in lockup in uh, state uh, prison in uh, Kentucky. Now, what, what's that, uh, that, that he works for? Because a lot, a lot of, you know, I've, I've uh, listened to a lot of different researchers and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I, I hear, I mean, obviously the, the motivation of Waco and, and, you know, his links to uh, the Nazis and, the, you know, they, that whole thing. Uh, but, the CIA thing, I don't, you know, I, I don't see a whole lot of um, links to the CIA as much as I see the FBI and like, you that's, know, that's FBI informants and stuff like that. What, what happens is there, I don't know if uh, James or you have uh, saw any real link, uh, strong links to uh, the CIA. Go ahead, James. You want to comment on that? Well, I'll let you comment on that because that's actually okay. a question I have too. This is all right. What we're able to um, bolster that with the records that we saw that Jones had given us access to there and lock up in um, at, at the law library at the University of Texas in Austin. And I asked him why UT Austin. Well, that's where Stephen Jones got his law degree. His first case out of law school was junior legal counsel for the Watergate hearings. You talk about jumping in on the deep end. This guy earned his bones immediately. He was very well respected, both from the Republicans and the Democratic uh, congressmen. And and that's that's what Jones found out. He saw McVeigh's pay records. He saw what McVeigh did for two and a half years leading up to the bombing. And that's hell would have froze over before that would have come out. And that's what Merrick Garland was pleading to the judge to cover up. This thing stinks to high heaven. It still does. And there is no statute of limitations on murder. Um, the and we as a film crew, another thing, you know, people ask me on a radio show, well, why are you after this? Are you trying to get people in trouble? It's like we don't have any legal standing as a film crew. 
only the victim's family members and survivors do. They can still go after the people that covered this case up on a civil basis. And there still is, I mean, a, a ton of information. We've offered some of it to them. And uh, we have other lawyers in Oklahoma City and in Dallas, Texas, that have offered to help them out. So, but the CIA connection, Do you have any yes, indication that, is, that Stephen Jones would be willing to cooperate with that kind of investigation if the one was launched? Uh, you know what? Uh, that would be have to, have to be a question you have to pose to him. He's got an office in Oklahoma City and in Eden still. I don't know um, if, in fact, uh, I, I, I'm sure if he was asked to be co-counsel and paid, you know, and he would certainly do a, a yeoman's job on it. But I, I can't speak for him. I don't know if he would be interested in doing that at this time, 24 years on. Now, CIA pay records. Well, what does that entail? Like, is that <laughs> is there is there checks that says CIA? <laughs> no. No, it's 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 a whole different. I I can't get into the specifics, but I, I can guarantee you guys that he was paid very well. They don't they don't issue checks. This this is basically it's a parallel life. You work for the CIA, it's you're you're off the books. And I mean that's what we knew of. We don't know what other pay he got, but Jones was able to get uh, through the military some some of his uh, pay records, and we found out that yeah, this is this is way above his pay grade as. Is what he, he did for well, the, the army. Definitely got a bunch of money, and uh, I mean, I think he was unemployed or or whatnot. So I mean, I don't know where his money his money must have that's, came from somewhere. Yeah, he had funds, yeah. and so yeah, so that's not a. I mean, kind of similar to Oswald, you know, going to uh, Russia and and doing all this traveling, you know, <laughs> but being broke, yeah. you know. So that's yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's interesting. Now, his FBI links. Now, uh, the evidence that they're you know he was hanging out with possibly FBI informants and, and, and all that stuff. I mean, what, who, who were the group of people he was hanging out with? And well, Andreas Strassmeyer um, was one of them. And by the way, Andreas Strassmeyer is the son of Gunther, Gunther Strassmeyer, who was the uh, chief of staff for Helmut Kohl, the former premier of, uh, of Germany. He was the equivalent of the president of Germany. And we, we, what in the world? We found out that actually it was Al Gore that requested the German government send Andreas Strassmeyer to the United States to infiltrate uh, neo-Nazi groups in, in the U.S. Well, the FBI caught wind of that and pretty much uh, geared it toward their efforts to set up uh, you know, gun rights uh, and uh, Second Amendment um, uh, people that supported um, that sort of movement in, in a very good way. Uh, these people weren't fanatics, but it was Strassmeyer was there to basically stir the pot and um, – and Jesse Trinity is a quote in the film is like, you have these guys trying to infiltrate these groups of six guys, and you find out four of them working for the U.S. government. I mean, it, it was a fix. And and, and this is and it, once again we go back and say, okay, why is the FBI doing this? And I'm not saying everybody in the FBI is bad. We had a lot of good people. It's the good and the bad in any agency you're looking at. And in order to justify, and this sounds really, really. Um, Sinister, but it's true to a certain extent. In order to justify the very existence of the FBI and these other agencies, they have to create cases to present to their budget to get renewed every two years in front of whatever appropriations committee they have in the Congress. If there are no cases being investigated, well, the budget's going to shrink. So they literally had to make stuff up. And we've caught, in, in fact, the Rolling Stone magazine did a, a phenomenal job on this in 2007. Uh, Oklahoma City was one of 24 cases they just made up out of whole cloth to create an event that didn't have to be created in the first place. And, of course, Oklahoma City was catastrophic. And, I mean, my God, 169 people, uh, including three unborns, were killed. And that includes uh, Kenny Trenadu. 
and they just it, it's really that's why it took us so long to wrap our head around this. We don't agree with what they did, but we understand. And that was a, a distinct difference. And as a film crew, it made it much easier for us to assimilate this information and try to put it down in, in a cohesive manner for people to understand. It was unbelievable what what the FBI, some elements of the FBI did. Luckily, we had the good part, including the head of the uh, FBI crime lab, Dr. Frederick Whitehurst, were consultants and they supported us on this film. Yep. Um, Frederick Whitehurst is another interesting person for people to look into. I interviewed him once several years ago, and uh, he's got some interesting things to say, not about not only about Oklahoma City, but also the uh, first World Trade Center bombing in 1993. Yes, great interview, James. Yeah, you did a good job on that. Thank you. Yeah. Um, uh, yes, this, this opens up another window into the story. Uh, one of the things that uh, Jesse Trenadu has talked about and uncovered with regards to this uh, case is PatCon, the Patriot Conspiracy Investigation that the FBI did for a number of years in the early 90s. They were investigating the white supremacist and militia movement in the early 90s, by which, of course, we mean infiltrating, planting agents in, and radicalizing and uh, involved in various plots. Um, Jesse uh, has said that PatCon, uh, sorry, uh, Ruby Ridge was a PatCon operation, Waco was a PatCon operation, and he believes Oklahoma City was a PatCon operation. Um and so that's one of the windows into this story. And it, I mean, this is the, I think, always the, the fall, uh, default fallback position for if and when this information finally becomes truly public consciousness, the FBI can always say, oh, well, we were just putting some people in to keep an eye on these organizations and it got out of hand and oops, you know, oops, it, it somehow we, we missed this one. Uh, that will always be the fallback to this. I think obviously it goes deeper than that. But um, that's interesting the, the whole PatCon um, angle to this, the, the sort of the, the attempt to infiltrate and, and um, provoke incidents that would then be used to clamp down on the militia movement that was growing in the uh, United States generally in the early 90s, because this is one of my um, actual kind of personal windows into the case. I vividly remember as a child, so I, I mean, this must have been late 1980s, um, even. I remember myself and my brothers would go around and we'd, we'd, uh, when we were making fun of each other, oh, you're, you're part of the crazy Michigan militia. I remember that was like part of our vocabulary. And how was that? It was because this was being portrayed and demonized on TV in various ways. And so me as a kid in Canada knew about this and it was part of my lexicon. So clearly there was a lot of stuff swirling around at the time that obviously evaporated quite quickly after this bombing. So that's one of the angles into this case. But as Chris indicates, I mean, this goes so much deeper than that. Well, the, and, go ahead. I was going to talk about one thing that we, uh, I just don't, uh, I think we're kind of getting away from it a little bit is, uh, uh, goes at the beginning of this story, the prior knowledge, people who knew ahead of time, I think that's an important uh, thing. I mean, if if the goal was to kill people who work for the government, like the ATF, he failed because there was no ATF people there. So do you guys want to get into that? Yes. Yeah. Um, in fact, there was a uh, secretary. She worked for the Secret Service and the ATF. She was the only one in the office that day. And, and the only reason she came in was to do some paperwork for the Secret Service uh, that had uh, quite a few meetings set up for that week. I've talked to the daughter of, of uh, that secretary, very well respected by both agencies, and um, the daughter found out from some of the coworkers that really had a lot of respect for both from Secret Service and ATF that, yeah, ATF was uh, – the pages were blowing up that morning. 
and they told uh, not to come in. And the kids, their, uh, the employees' kids in the America's Kids Daycare Center on the second floor were also not shown up. And so um, lied about it, right? They said something about being in a in a elevator, and then oh yeah, and then um, find out some of the people who uh, worked on the elevator said no, there was no problems with the elevator. That none of them were stuck in there. It was you know, so it's it was just another example of being caught lying about their uh, whereabouts. Yeah, we had. Uh, I mean, we interviewed the lead mechanic that was in charge of uh, the, the contract with. I don't think it was uh, the elevator company. I don't think it was Otis. It was another one. And uh, he said, "Yeah, there's." He had uh, several uh, brakes, uh, safety switches on there. The elevators wouldn't have fallen, and uh, you can't pry those doors open. Uh, in fact, they were wedged shut, so nobody could have got in. And the only way you could have got in was for the trap doors, but they were covered with debris. So the whole story just was complete bunk. And um, yeah, the ATF agent that claimed that was caught in so many lies. And there, there's so. just so many examples of uh, prior knowledge, including on the day itself, two hours before the blast, there's um, witnesses reporting there was a bomb squad truck parked across the street. Um, 24 minutes before the blast, um, someone called the executive secretariat's office at the Justice Department in Washington and said the Murrah building had been bombed. That was 24 minutes before the blast. Um, You have the bizarre story, I don't even know what to make of, of the uh, brother of the governor of Oklahoma writing a book before the attack took place, of course, in which a Tom McVeigh blows up a federal building. But, you know, just a coincidence, I guess. Um, I'm also, I mean, as speaking of the cookie crumb trail of um, leads that the FBI has is is out there that the FBI will undoubtedly fall back on. Oops, you know it's a sting that got away. I'm looking right now at a, a, a lead lead number redacted. Um, I'll, I'll send you the link to this, uh, Ricky, so you can put it in the show notes. But it says based on a request for contact, uh, special agents redacted contacted redacted 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 protect identity by request at this time redacted provided a two page document which bore indications of being faxed. Redacted stated that Redacted contributed a considerable amount of knowledge and information to this article. Redacted, 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 Redacted related that this document contained information which would remove all doubt that the ATF and the FBI had prior knowledge of the bomb which destroyed the Alfred P. Murrah uh, Federal Building in Oklahoma City on April 19, 1995. Redacted stated that these agencies attempted to develop a sting operation and did not take the bomb threat seriously. Again, that's a I mean, that was uh, Plaintiff's Exhibit 45, uh, Date of Trans. Inscription 72296. This is an official FBI document that's stating in its own words. Yeah, I mean, we knew about it, but it was a sting operation that went bad. So, again, there's so many different, there's a hundred different cookie crumbs of people who had prior knowledge of one form or another about this blast, including, as I said, about Carol Howe having been involved in the sting uh, and that was going on with Elohim City and having been there in December staking out the, the Murrah building. Um, then you get into Jane Graham and testifying that she saw, and she now says Andreas Strassmeyer. She didn't always say it was Andreas Strassmeyer, so you have to uh, wonder about changing stories and that. But at any rate, saying Andreas Strassmeyer and other men were in the building, um, what was it, Chris, a week before the, the bombing or a few days before? Yes, it was actually, um, uh, okay, that was on Wednesday, Easter Sunday was before. They were there the Thursday and Friday before uh, Easter Sunday, so it was a, a little under a week. Right, and she testifies applying something to some of the the beams in the parking lot, I believe, in the parking. It garage. was in the the parking ramp. Um, 
which is um, below it. The Murrow building itself is nine floors above grade, but there were three uh, levels below grade of, of the parking uh, for the federal judges, the secretaries, and the uh, the court employees. Um, also in the courthouse, um, which there was a tunnel under Fourth Street to the courthouse, just to the south, and that was shared with the employees of the Murrow building as well as the courthouse. So, Ricky, excuse me for a second while I ask Chris a question, because I want to know about your take on Nichols' place in this. As you say, he was uh, set up from the beginning. But, I mean, clearly he was involved in some way with McVeigh, and they were involved in something. But what was Nichols really involved in, and how much did he know? As people may or may not know in his uh, declaration, which I got posted to my website. Again, I'll send you the link, Ricky, if you need to put it up. Um, that he said that uh, McVeigh admitted he was being directed by someone he called the major and that That's Nichols correct. identified as Larry Potts. But uh, what, That's correct. What do you know about what Nichols knew and how much did he know? The, the little that we know, and Michael Tiger, his um, chief uh, defense counsel, really was pretty tight-lipped on this. Nichols was a very... Um, his personality had a little bit of a disorder. He was very uh, easily influenced, and he was a willing dupe, thought that he was in a bigger operation for the good, come to find out. Um, he was set up. Uh, the, the All of the evidence against him was literally manufactured to fit the case versus the other way around. And he was in more so, even with McVeigh. But Nichols' trial came after McVeigh's. What we know about Nichols is that um, he he was charged with failing to, to uh, alert federal authorities for the bombing. And um, it came within, in fact, his case was so weak that the uh, federal uh, jury came within two counts of acquitting him of all charges. That we do know. But the rule was that you had to have all 12 members of the jury to acquit him. Only 10 voted. Two did not. And that's why he was was sentenced. And even uh, Judge Mace was very reluctant. uh, And the the jury foreperson got a a chance to review her post- trial interview in Denver for 42 minutes, she ripped the prosecution up and down. This is coming from the jury foreperson. And she said they had nothing to stand on. So we know that his, the case against him was very weak. And he should have been out of prison a long time ago. Why they threw him in federal lockup like that in, in Supermax and John Ashcroft came down to him like a ton of bricks. Uh, it just the, the whole, We know the case was completely, it was garbage. Um, but he was a willing dupe and he got set up by McVeigh. And unfortunately, he took the fall. And uh, I, we wish we could have got more records. Even Stephen Jones says he, he asked Michael Tiger for some of the records on our behalf. And Tiger just said, no, sorry, can't do it. So that's all I have to offer at this point. Yeah, I know. He. I also heard that he, uh, Terry Nichols wrote Jesse trying to do a letter saying that uh, there's higher ups. You know. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I'll, I'll, let me if I can take two seconds to share something with you. Jesse was a... Before, the only people that could visit Nichols in the federal lockup was immediate family members or legal counsel that was on record before he was sent to uh, prison. Well, it just so happened Jesse Trinidad did help him out on some stuff before he was sentenced. So he was still allowed to go in. What did Jesse do? He goes in there and talks to Nichols at the um, federal lockup. But he had an FBI minder in the room. And it's like, well, so much for attorney-client privilege. FBI said, nope, sorry, it doesn't exist here. You're in BOP, uh, BOP uh, facilities. Like, no, that doesn't. Anyway, so Nichols uh, was able to go. He said he would go and speak with in front of a, a grand jury in Denver uh, under the condition that he could tell all. And 
that that didn't happen. But anyway, uh, um, Jesse leaves the prison grounds. Nichols goes back across the yard, and he's taken in protective custody because they, everybody thought he was an arc. Well, he was just talking to, to Jesse Trinidad about the case, and he said, "Jesse, please get me in front of a grand jury. I'll blow this thing wide open." FBI and Justice Department would not have any part of it. They just they put him right back in, and that was it. That's the only time Jesse ever met with him. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I mean, that sounds like Jack Ruby saying, "Get me out of Dallas." And, yeah, uh, I'll tell you more. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, that that's interesting. I mean, and the other thing too is that uh, I always found intriguing was that why would Timothy McVeigh, if if he was in, you know, he he obviously blew up, um, you know, was involved in in, in some way with uh, the OKC bombing. Why would he be driving around with a car with no license plate? I mean, that's just yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and when picked up, claiming that he had a microchip in his ass. Yeah, and then uh, that he, he he told Charlie Hanger that he had a, a firearm. I mean, it was very cooperative. Charlie Hanger was his day off. He's 100, actually 152 miles away from his precinct as a state trooper. That's unheard of. You don't go that far out of your precinct. Charlie Hanger's mortgage was actually paid off on his house. I know this is tenuous, but still, why why would the mortgage be paid off on over $320,000 uh, on his house less than six months after he testified? <laughs> and you know he's, he ends up becoming uh, what the uh, uh, county sheriff after that, and um, I mean it was just it was everything was just wide open for Charlie after he it, it was a rigged testimony. He he had no he, he wasn't credible at all, and you know he just his claim to fame was stopping McVeigh. Well, he knew damn well where McVeigh was going to be. It wasn't just by chance. He was set up to be on the interstate at that time of, of the day. So. Uh, boy, it's frustrating. But um, we tried to get him on camera. He wouldn't uh, return our phone calls. Yeah, that, that's uh, you know, there's so many, there's so many layers to, to the story. Uh, is there any other uh, people you guys want to uh, maybe expand on? Well, uh, I don't know. I, you know here's I, something I want to get into because this is, yeah. I mean, interesting to ev- everyone, I'm sure. Chris, is Timothy McVeigh dead? No, and I, I, you know, I don't even hesitate on that because. And I've been asked that before, and that's a good question. Craig Roberts, we interview him in the film. He was handpicked by the Tulsa FBI field office to help investigate this case within about two weeks after it happened. Why? Because Craig had a good working relationship with a lot of the folks in Oklahoma and Arkansas, mainly in Oklahoma, that happened to be gun rights activists that were very level-headed. You know, these are... Uh, so what if they're from the rural community? I mean, they, they had their head screwed on straight. They knew what was going on. But they knew Craig could get into certain areas that the FBI would certainly wouldn't have access to and to certain people. And Craig helped him out. Um, but he and I talked about this. In fact, the first time I met him was about a month after I moved to Oklahoma City. I took him out to, to lunch in Tulsa. And I looked at him point blank. We were at a uh, equivalent to a Denny's for about two hours and I looked at him and I said, do you think McVeigh's dead? And he didn't even hesitate. He says, no. He says, you work for the CIA. You don't kill off your assets. That's the last thing they want to do. And you'd have a hell of a time recruiting for the CIA if you're killing off your assets. McVeigh was set up to do this job. It wasn't supposed to go live. It did. It was a catastrophic breakdown of communication between the different agencies. Turf wars, ego wars, you name it. Everybody wanted their own budget. It was it was disgusting with I mean the the infighting that was going on behind the scenes and this came out after we found this from uh, from the highway patrol and the county sheriffs and the Oklahoma City Police Department and the OSBI which is the state counterpart to the FBI and even some uh, people that helped us from the FBI field office they said yeah it was just a it was a, a sick convolution of of ego and everything. 
But Craig says, no, there's, there's no way. Um, and the fact that, get this, James Nichols, Terry's brother, was actually good friends with McVeigh's birth dad, even though McVeigh's mom and dad uh, divorced when he was young. And yeah. it was McVeigh's birth dad that sued for the remains at the, um, uh, the execution chamber in Terre Haute. The warden would not hand over the body to McVeigh or to McVeigh's dad. Now, why wouldn't? I mean, come on. That's just, that's just common decency and the moral, the right thing to do. They handed him an urn full of ashes. Well, it could have been somebody's cat. I'm not being trite here, but it's, it's ridiculous how they treated his, his birth dad. But, but we and can tell from the autopsy that they are required yeah. to perform after a federal exit. Oh, wait. Exactly. No, Terry, uh, Tim McVeigh spent most of his time uh, on death's death row trying to get a special deal so that he wouldn't be an autopsied. That's all. Right, exactly. And, that's, that's, and again, that's the retired CIA agent that we talked to. Also said that's part of the mode of operation, the MOP. That that that's what they do in order to cover their back, plausible deniability, you name it. Um, so this thing, like I said, there there's so many. Oh God, I I wish I could give you a straight answer on that, but all I can say is no, I don't think he's dead, and um, that's that's the reason why because that's just the way they operate. You don't kill off your assets, and they wanted to use him possibly for another operation. Um, so that's the long and short of it. Yeah, the autopsy thing is really interesting. And I mean, the killing the assets thing, I guess to be the devil's advocate, you could always make the argument that, well, they're kind of lying about him being asset anyway. So, I mean, you could you could tell other assets that like, hey, he didn't work for us, you know, but um, yeah, but, yeah. but the, the not doing an autopsy. I mean, that's that's really I mean, I think that's uh, at least, you know, we'll. we'll will graze some uh, some brows, uh, eyebrows. And that. you had it. And you had one witness at the execution saying she saw him still breathing after he was declared dead. So, right. Was it from a Chicago uh, TV station? I'm yeah, there was, sure. a, it was a reporter. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Wow. That's it. Just this story. That's the thing. I think from the outside looking in people who just briefly kind of looked over this this event, they didn't. I mean, I think a lot of people don't realize how deep it is. I mean, the JFK assassination, 9-11, like those stories, we we know there's thousands of, you know, maybe I'm exaggerating, maybe possibly thousands of little rabbit holes you can go down and, and just, you know, get lost in these side stories. But the OKC story seems like, oh, it's Timothy McVeigh, Nichols, bomb, I mean, a building blew up and, you know, that's it. But it's just like there's so many characters, so many other storylines and uh, there's, you know, just so much and so many question marks. And that's the thing about these stories is that similar to 9-11 or uh, JFK, there's still a lot of question on why, you know, what I, maybe that's the probably the hardest question to answer is is the why. And wh- what do you what's your, uh, you know, uh, if one of you guys want to take the lead on on maybe giving your opinion on why you think this happened, why uh, was it for some other reason? Did did people try to just capitalize on it, or were people, or was it a, a actual plan to try to, I guess, I mean, use it as 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 a, I mean, I know you talked about PatCon, but was it, you know, was it only to to demonize the, you know, maybe the the right or these militias or maybe the Nazis or you know, well, or was there? How about more I give my it? take first, and we'll go see. Ahead. Chris will no, see ahead, if uh, how how correct I am. <laughs> um, yeah. This, to me, seems like an operation where, as Chris has said, there are good people in these various agencies, and then you get caught into these turf wars and the whatevers, and suddenly this thing happens. But 
I think beyond, above that, there was elements directing this. And specifically at the Oklahoma Federal Building, um, again, this is speculation, but it is my understanding there were a lot of important documents that were uh, kept at the Oklahoma Federal Building, um, which were destroyed, of course. And, of course, all the evidence completely destroyed by Controlled Demolition Inc. in the wake of uh, this. So I think there were, there were elements above the, this that were puppeteering it, but there were people who were actually involved in this on the ground that were doing what they thought they were doing. They were stinging Elohim City and these white supremacists and these bank robbers and all of this, and... And it uh, got out of control and went live. Um, that's the that's the point at which I think the control comes in. Oh no, this isn't a sting. This isn't a test. We're going live with this. And uh, it, you know that a lot of people who were involved in it in one way or another see that suddenly. Oh, this thing that we were kind of setting up. Oh, it really happened. Oh God. And now and then and then everyone's motivated to cover it up, regardless of whether they were knowingly involved in it uh, in the first place or not. One thing that we was it was a struggle for us um, when I moved to Oklahoma City. It took me, I'd say, the better part of five months just to wrap my head around. There was still an undertow and an animosity between the local authorities and the FBI field office in Oklahoma City and their bosses in in uh, Washington D.C. You have FBI agents coming in, and this get back to your question here in a minute, Ricky, uh, to, to come in and tell the locals how to do their job when their good friends and some of their family members and cousins were killed in the bombing. Are you kidding me? I mean, it was just the, the, the hubris and the arrogance was just way off the charts. But what I found out um, from a DEA agent, she was a, uh, a survivor on the seventh floor. She was in charge of uh, the, the locks and the security system in their safe room. What they had in that safe room was, we're talking not hundreds of thousands, but millions of dollars in cash, contraband drugs, firearms from a huge drug case that was due to go to court on May 10 of that year. And bombing happens on April 19. And the there were um, 23 people indicted. They were in custody at the federal prison outside of um, Oklahoma City. In fact, the same federal prison that Terry Ickey was found a mile and a half from uh, when he perished a year and three weeks after the bombing. It was the El Reno Federal Prison. Anyway, they're in custody awaiting trial. All of that evidence was destroyed. Six days after the bombing, the indictments were dropped. These people were let out of custody. So... And one thing is the film crew, he says, all right, obviously, like, again, like we said at the beginning of the interview, the narrative makes no sense. I mean, it's just, it's the equivalent of James even said on, we're on an Alex Jones show. It's the equivalent of the Wiley E. Coyote tiptoeing into the AP Murrah building with, a, with an Acme bomb. It is, I mean, it's that off. It's it just, there's no credibility. So he says, all right, why was this building blown up? Who stood to gain and who stood to lose? And as soon as I found out about the, all that evidence in the, on the DEA uh, safe room on the seventh floor, I thought, oh, my God. Okay, that's that's flag number one. Flag number two was the documents that James alludes to. We had tried to search for proof of that. We did see some in a video that was shot by the county sheriffs, some CIA documents that were in the Murrah building. Well, they never had an office there. Why would the CIA have documents in the building? Again, flag number two. Flag number three was that um, Bill Clinton, of course, was in office at the time, and his records – him and Hillary, and a lot of people don't know this, he and Hillary were due to be uh, brought before a, uh, a joint House and a Senate subcommittee on the corruption between the Whitewater uh, uh, money laundering and a lot of what he did in, uh, as a governor and attorney general in Arkansas. It was so over the top, the senators, even the U.S. reps and the senators says, no, we can't look the other way anymore. we got to indict this. This is way over the top. Those documents were in the building, and I think that's what James alluded to. So there were several things going on at once. 
there were several parties that had a vested interest in having that building come down. It had nothing to do with the sting operation. And so that's that's more of a plausible um, uh, trail that we followed. Yeah, and, and, and that lines out, up with yeah. an analysis that I have on so many of these different events, which is that people are always looking for the one why behind an event like this. But I think an event of this size generally does not happen because it suits one person's interest for one specific agenda. It's generally when a number of different agenda items come together at a spot, suddenly you see something happen there. And I, th- I think that we could apply that analysis to 9-11 and many other events, but it, with OKC it, uh, as well. I don't think there's a one singular one reason. I think there are multiple reasons that happen to line up. And then and then afterwards, you get people jumping on top of it as well. Um, like Biden, of course, coming out with the uh, legislation that eventually gets passed the next year that he takes credit for to this day as being the, the real genesis of the Patriot Act. Well, we really passed what was the, became the Patriot Act back in 96. And it was, you know, the crime omnibus. It was the beginning. Of it. And Exactly. And even General Parton, who we interviewed, said, we didn't need that bill. We're, there was already plenty on the books. To, it was overkill. It, it, it was completely ludicrous to even enter that legislation. So Biden may have, who knows who asked him to, uh, you know, co-author that or, you know, run that through uh, the chain of command in Congress. But you're right, James, it's it's mind boggling. There were times, and I will tell you this, guys, on a personal note, that I had to leave town just to get my, clear my mind. It was so far down the rabbit hole. Stuff that we were coming up with, I thought, my God, what country am I living in? And I'm not sounding... You know, naive here, but I've I couldn't even fathom some of the stuff that uh, we we saw and stuff that um, our sources at the airbase were giving us that we couldn't even put in a film because people thought, and I'm not being trite here, they thought we probably would smoke and crack if we put this in the film. It was that far off, but it was credible. We just had to be very focused and and very how do we say this? Um, had to keep it into a level that people could understand. You know, straight out of the gate, we don't want to go too far ahead of the game. And there's still things that, we, you know, six and a half hours of footage we shot. We had to narrow it down to two hours. So we could do probably two Can more movies. Can you give us and any indication expand. what might be in there? Uh, well, again, we want to expand on McVeigh's, uh, what he did with the CIA. Um, I mean, the stuff he got away with was amazing. The resources he had to get from point A to point B. Uh, one of the, And again, we alluded to this in the film. He was a on the General Schwarzkopf security detail in the first Persian Gulf War. That never came out. Can you imagine? Well, it eventually uh, came over. out. I think biography, yeah. even the biography channel eventually noted it. But, right. <laughs> you know, it took, a, it took a while for people to, to find that out. But, but he got it, rejected from the special forces, and that was that. And he became a lonesome loser who traveled around the country. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. It's, and the whole, the whole connection to Waco, that was just a cover story. He was sheeped up. Uh, that, was, that, was already, that was already manufactured years before probably even Waco happened, but that's speculation on my part. And what they do is they'll set these things up six, seven, eight years ahead of time, and then they'll green light it when they need to be greenlit. It, it'll, go, it'll go live. Um, but it's, you know, just one of many things that happen, um, as you know. So anyway. Yeah, what, what bothers me, I mean, and, and being parents here, is uh, the fact that there's a daycare in there and people lost their children and and the fact that there's firefighters that talk about rescue missions, like they're in the in there, and like three or four separate times they called off the rescue mission because they said there were bombs are going to go off, and there's people that could have been, you know, saved and weren't because it was called off. I mean, so many people lost their lives, and the and the children, and and I hear some people, uh, some researchers talk about possibly the rescue missions were called off because it was helping the ATF get some bombs or something out of there. 
uh, they're off something that shouldn't have been in there because they could have got in trouble for some stuff. I've heard that. Uh, well, that well, theory. go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say I heard that theory. Did, well, you, there, there are two things that we know for sure. Don Browning, who we interviewed in the film, was one of the canine officers. He had a great, great uh, dog. And he was on the um, the South Plaza. The, the north side of the building is what was blown out. And he was tasked to go in and look for survivors, people that were under the rubble, reaching through, literally. And guys, for lack of a better term, this the raw footage that I saw on Beta Masters that was shot by the local PBS affiliate, Channel 9 out of Tulsa, who had stringer photographers down there, two and three-quarter hours. I mean, this stuff looked like something out of the Walking Dead episode. I am not exaggerating. They were coming out of there with their arms gone, the hands gone, part of the face is gone. It was like, wow, this is horrendous. Um, and they were so you know, hopped up on adrenaline, they did not know that they were severely injured like that, trying to help their fellow workers get out of the building. It was astounding. None of this went up the satellite uplink to CNN or CBS or NBC at the flagship stations because they didn't have time to vet it. But it was shot. It was still on the Beta Masters. And it was put in the way in a safe, and I was able to get a hold of it through a, a friend that had um, – uh, a videographer that used to work for the PBS uh, station in Oklahoma City, and we saw it several years later. Uh, but the point is that um, what you were getting at, Ricky, is we really had to stay focused on this and find out, okay, set a, a good foundation for what we can and what we can't prove. And we went with what we could prove, and that uh, in and of itself completely destroyed the official narrative. And that's and we did the best we could, and and there's more, like I said, a lot more information we can get out there. And and to uh, I guess to uh, to steal uh, the name of uh, another Oklahoma City uh, book that's really good, Oklahoma City, uh, what the investigation missed and why it still matters by uh, yes and and Charles. Uh, let's uh, that's a question I kind of want to ask too. Is I I have my opinion, but why do you, yeah? There it is. <laughs> Was it by um, what's his name, Gumble? Roger yeah, Charles Gumbel. and uh, and uh, Andrew Gumble. I I interviewed Roger Charles about it a number of years ago. Yes. Now we found that Roger Charles was not happy on the the, the results of that book. Gumble took creative liberty on some of the stuff, and we met him at the book signing at uh, the um, Full Circle Bookstore when he released that book, and he just ripped apart Jesse Trinidad's uh, take on the case. And I said, "Oh my God, what's going on here?" You know, but. Mm. Yeah, it was very interesting. Uh, why he, 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 in fact, he chastised us for even bringing it up in the uh, the Q and A at the book signing. I thought, oh boy, uh, what angle is he trying to take on this? So, uh, interesting. Yeah, Roger Charles was not happy about that at all. So, and, and so, so just to be clear, that was Gumble that was. That's correct. That, yeah, right? Charles yeah. was Roger wasn't there at the book signing. Yeah, yeah. he he was he was not uh, happy with the very final uh, edit on that. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> Yeah, I wa- I wonder what uh hmm. that's that's interesting. Is Roger Charles <laughs> working on any other books like by himself? Do you know of? You know, I I I talked to him about a year ago, and um, he was working on something uh with with a um, a writer out of England. I I don't know how far along they got, but we I had heard, a good chat. Go ahead. I I heard an interview with uh, Richard Booth and Scott Horton not too long ago. And uh, Richard Booth is is really, I mean, he's going real deep in this and doing a website, and he's uh, also doing a book. And I know that he mentioned that uh, Roger Charles is also doing a, a book. So, um, so I mean, R- Richard Booth's another one who, who's doing great research and great work. And I mean, there there are so many. Just yeah, great he's research. launching a site like of all yeah. the documents and everything 
uh, right? Yeah. That hasn't actually launched yet, though. No, but if you want to get to it, he uh, if you email him, he will let you have access to it. Uh, Scott Horton's another one who who's, you know, throughout the years has showed much interest in, in the OKC. Yeah, Scott's done a great job. I, I uh, was very honored to be on his show several years ago, so I, I commend him for what his work, too. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's not a whole lot of people, you know, who uh, you know, researching this stuff, which is why I wanted to do a, a show on this. Uh, you know, I did the JFK assassination one, which is still doing awesome, and and I think it really helped with just kind of sparking interest and and getting uh, and even getting just old researchers like uh, James Eugenio, who's been around forever, just getting you know new conversations with them and see what he's he's up to and stuff. I think it it uh it did really really well. My my goal is to one day embrace yourself james to do a 9-11 special uh a, a round table discussion and i brainstorm obviously you would be on there and i brainstorm like who else would i bring on here and how, how can i make sure that everybody meshed and it'd be such an important topic that it's like you know there's so many researchers and everybody has different perspectives i think for those that would be willing to you know i guess have a conversation with people that uh they might disagree on certain things or whatnot, but I think those conversations are important. And uh, I think, it, you know, just, just like we, we talked about, you know, not everybody has the same theory on all, all these things. But what's important to me is that if your heart's in the right place and you're trying to expose the truth that you think maybe these dots are connected and taking you down this path, and I think these dots are closer closerly connected and taking you down this path. It's just one of those things where I don't think that's nearly as important as bringing attention to the topic and showing that there are some questions and there are, there was a cover up and there are, um, you know, uh, a, a, there, it was a crappy investigation that, you know, didn't get to the truth. And I think that's really important. So I know nine 11 is such a big topic, but, uh, it, it is one of those things I've been brainstorming for a while to, to kind of do a, a round table discussion on it to hopefully get attention on it, but also show, um, cause I actually, it doesn't really need attention, but to show that, you know, everybody, you know, all these good, re- great researchers can bring the information together and kind of, uh, you know, be civil about it. Cause I think too often it's, it's gone to the point where I think these topics have brought people together, you know, because it's like, Oh, you're intrigued in this, this, this cover up or this conspiracy also. But, and then it's, ter- it's torn people apart because, and then it's like, well, I believe this happened and you believe that happened and you, you know, right, right. and it's like, and I, and I think it becomes counterproductive. So, um, you know, let's, let's, well, a couple, a couple of names I'd recommend, of course, James uh, Corvette, obviously uh, Richard Grove James, and uh, Kevin James Barrett. Is the gold standard. James is the gold standard. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it, it, you're right. It, it's, it's the wish list or the short list of who you want there. And uh, those, those are three names I'd pop right off the, yeah. yeah Richard Grove is awesome because he, he actually has a, a connection to it, you know, and, um, and I actually, uh, Richard and I have actually gotten pretty close because he, we come, come to find out he lives, uh, not too far from me in Hartford. So we've actually did, gotten, did, we've yeah, gotten, he did a wonderful job for us, help co-wrote the script for our second film and, uh, him and Lisa did the voiceover and, uh, Richard, uh, you know, saved the day for us in many respects on that film. So, yeah, yeah Richard's awesome. I've actually hung out with him quite a few times and, and super nice, nice guy. Hopefully one day I'll be able to hang out with you guys and have a, a drink and I'll be able to bring some whiskey or some homemade Portuguese wine for you guys. <laughs> That'd be awesome. I'd love that. It just to sit back and, uh, James, when are you going to make it back stateside? Uh, do you, you come back at all or I, I haven't been to the States since 2005, I think. And, uh, wow. no plans to go anytime soon. <laughs> wow. Well, you've been, you've been, okay. You've been in America, right? Cause you've been to Canada. 
Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I go back home, yeah. but I don't go to the States. Given what I do, I just... No, it's okay. <laughs> I'll watch yeah. it from a distance. There you go. <laughs> but so, so I guess to, get, get to, to wrap this all up, why do you... And give back to that title. Why do you think it's so important? Go ahead, James. Oh, okay, well, I think it is important. Um, as I say from the beginning, my personal side, I don't have any personal connection to this, but what I found intriguing about it is that it is so clear-cut that the official story is a pack of lies or half-truths or cover-ups. That, that can be e easily demonstrated, and it is one of those events that people don't have so many mental barriers up around. Uh, perhaps maybe people in Oklahoma might have a different take on it, but most people don't have that kind of... Um, visceral reaction to it that they would to something like a 9-11 where they can see. I mean, most people, when they're presented this information, can quite clearly see that there's something very wrong about the story. So I think it's valuable in that, that it opens up the window to this conversation about, well, what is this event and what does it mean and, and how did this happen and what does it mean that it's been covered up for all this time and that they're still lying about it? Uh, I think it's just very interesting as a window into that. And of course, I mean, Bottom line, it's still justice for all of the people who were killed that day, um, including people who were killed afterwards, the Yankees and the Trinidus and other people who uh, were collateral damage. I'm sure some intelligence agency would refer to it uh, in, in these cases. So uh, justice is obviously the root of all of this, but also just on the wider perspective, it's a fascinating study of something that is clearly a cover up and that you can clearly and easily demonstrate is a cover up. Yeah, two things real quick, Ricky, to answer your question. Uh, you and I talked about this, I think, on a phone call last week. The State Board of Education for the state of Oklahoma, on the 10-year anniversary, 2005, um, asked a state representative and a state senator to co-author a bill in the state house to make it mandatory to teach the official narrative of the Oklahoma City bombing. And I'm, I'm thinking back in... Uh, Oh, my God, you know, back in Nazi Germany and or whether it be the Stasi in, in Russia or Eastern Europe, how they would mandate certain curriculum or forbid certain curriculum. And uh, to have the governor sign this off the, on the, the morning of the 10 year anniversary of the bombing was astounding. And that's why we need to tell generations that weren't even born. then. I mean, we're talking 24 years on over two generations. Give the kids something to at least have a reference point on and have them decide. We're not going to tell them how to think, but at least give them credible information to level the playing field and say, look, this is what happened. Uh, this is what you need to know. You make the decision. You know, uh, that, that's, I think that's the bottom line. You, you cannot continue to pander and perpetuate a steady stream of lies on this. It just, it implodes in on itself, excuse the pun, but it's simply not going to, it's not going to hold up. And we have a responsibility at least, try to give these kids the information that's correct. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And I think, like like I said prior, 9-11 is one of those things where I think it's still fresh in our minds. People still have a very emotional reaction to it where you bring it up. And the first thing you want to do if somebody questions the official story is that you, you want to just get emotional, you get upset and whatnot. But OKC is just far enough in the past where you bring it up and people don't have that emotional connection. And I think it's probably much easier to, to look at it logically instead of emotionally. And it's probably easier to get somebody to, to, I guess, you know, look at the evidence and, and not just emotionally react to, to uh, somebody questioning the official story. I mean, it's just, like you said, it's, it's so obvious that there's so many cases of people seeing other 
people and other John Doe's and and the and it's obvious that these people were never investigated that they they never really searched for these other people that were involved in this and um and that just alone you know kind of can start you off uh, down that trail it's like what if there's other people who are also responsible for this why weren't they invested you know in that you know and and I think that's super important and like I said these historical could events could easily be forgotten. No, go. No, you go ahead, uh, Chris, because I'm sure I'm going to go on a long rant. That probably- no, 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 that's right. I, I wanted to share something. I don't think I've ever told this on the radio interview before, and I've, I was talking to my girlfriend today. She said, how many of these have you done? And I said, probably well over 150, and I'm not bragging. James, you've been on a ton of interviews, and Ricky, you've knocked it out of the park how many times? But the last film festival that we were at, it was in Durant, Oklahoma, southern Oklahoma, and we were given a, a finalist award. And after the showing, we expected maybe 20 or 30 people to show up. This is at a, uh, a community college down there, not far from the Texas border. And we had over 100 people show up. I mean, it was standing room only. We were just flattered, you know, to all get out. Afterwards, I had a state, former uh, state highway patrolman who was a bike officer who was on the scene that morning. He was a rookie at the time. And he was listening to the different radio bands they had on the motorcycle. He said they have seven or eight different channels open and something like that. And he, he saw the crescendo of the dispatchers calling in, uh, you know, the hazmat uh, and the the ladder trucks. And then all 23 different uh, search and rescue and law enforcement responded to that scene within the first, uh, he said, probably the first two hours. I mean, it was just unbelievable pandemonium. They finally got it organized. They set up triage areas. Anyway, he knew. He knew from the Oklahoma City Police Department and the county sheriffs and the highway patrol that they they knew who to go after as far as even before the indictments were handed down and the others unknown. And he knew there was a big lie, but he saw our film and he said it helped bring together. And I'm being humble here. I'm not bragging, but at least in our humble effort, we were able to at least piece some of the, the, the pieces of the puzzle together. And he cried. I mean, we're out in the hallway outside of this this viewing room. And he cried and he gave me a big bear hug. Six foot seven. This guy probably weighed about 270 pounds. And I'm just thinking to myself, holy cow, uh, we struck a chord with him. But that's to answer your question is at least try to give people some idea that makes sense of what happened. And coming from a retired state highway patrolman like that, I didn't expect that. His kids were there. They were crying. And I thought, wow, Um, I guess, you know, that particular day we did a good job. And that's, I guess that's what it's all about. And that's what you guys do, your radio shows. James, what, I mean, what you've done for years, holy cow. Um, that, that's, that's what we all try to do. We just try to bring the truth out and make some sense of the chaos that we have in the world today. Yeah, you guys are always so modest. But uh, honestly, you, your work is, is so important. And, you know, some, they say you don't know history is happening uh, when it's happening. And I think that is, you know, your work, it, when looking back at it, it's historical pieces of work. I mean, James has been a huge influence of, of mine. Chris, Chris's uh, documentary, Noble Lives, the, I think the first documentary I ever watched to really open my mind to the OKC uh, bombing and it was really in, influential and in me going down that rabbit hole. And uh, it's, you know, it, it, it just can't be said enough how, how important both of you guys have been to the whole movement and just helping people like myself. I mean, this, I, this podcast would, wouldn't exist if your documentaries didn't uh, didn't exist if James's uh, podcast and his website didn't exist. I mean, it's it's been such help with just helping me just expand my my thinking, my perspectives, and, and really question things. 
and um and 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 sometimes just scaring the shit out of me to be honest with you because okay. I mean, just, yeah I, I hear you when I when I first yeah. start you know when I first start going into this and getting involved with James's work and get, really get deep into some documentaries and research I'm just I mean I was pro- a little paranoid I start you know and now I'm I'm much more comfortable because I'm just like well you know yeah it, it is what it is but it it's one of those things where initially I think it's it's scary and I can see how when somebody first has these conversations or first watches one of your films or documentaries you i mean you get that sense of everything is a lie and it can be a little scary and it can then some people you know ignorance is bliss some people would rather just be like you know what this i'd rather not go down this rabbit hole i'd rather just live my happy life the way i was going and not know all this other stuff is going on and all this other manipulation and brainwashing and, and all these other people are pulling the strings and um i think it makes you feel like you have zero control of your life and what happens around you. And uh, I think that can be scary for people. So, yeah. And by the way, James, I want to let you know on my cell phone, I have the links to both your 9 11 summary on the Oklahoma City summary. And I, I just, I got a kick out of you put them both together. And people ask me, I says, well, give me a quick summary. Bam. I'm sending those links out immediately to them. It's uh, phenomenal. Glad to hear that. That is, I, I hope <laughs> so, at least get some people to dip their toe in these waters. Because there's just so much, and I know people spend you know decades of their lives researching this. So to try to encapsulate that in five minutes is a tall order. But it's one of those stories. Again, the official story is so stupid that you almost have to laugh at it if it wasn't so tragic. Yeah. You have millions of views. I think at least on the 9/11 one. I mean, you blew by that threshold years ago, but it's amazing the the response you got on there. So anyway, gentlemen, I, I'm. Sorry, I have to hop yeah, here. Yeah, I gotta go too. Minutes, but right. we all, we all okay. got. Hey, uh, I'll let everybody know in the intro. Well, you can get James's uh, stuff on his website and uh, everywhere else. Just look up uh, OKC bombing on his website. All his videos will come up. I'll put links in the show notes. Obviously, uh, the Noble Eye, which I said in the beginning of the the, the, uh, the podcast, is available on Amazon. Please support these guys. Please, please, please. I've been supporting James for a long time. Uh, even if it's just a dollar a day, I watch a noble lie sometimes when I'm not in the room, just hoping that they get money because it's playing. <laughs> oh, no, oh, thank no. you. Yeah. Uh, and it's a triple, it's a freemindfilms.com and right on the, the homepage is links to all three of our films on Amazon. Thank you for that. Hey, thanks, appreciate guys. that. Really appreciate okay. your time and we'll talk all again. Right. Take care, guys. God bless. Thank you. Yeah.